These are the words of Yahweh, our Lord, as written in the book of Hebrews. I'll be reading verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 18, chapter 4, 14 through 16, and chapter 7, 26 through 28. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, brought, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. These are the words of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the high priest, your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of salvation. We pray for Tom as he speaks, that your Holy Spirit would hover over him. That you would speak through him to us, Father, that he would speak your words, not his that he would encourage us, Father, that he would build us up through walking us through these passages. Father, we thank you that you have written them in a book that stays with us and that we can study and learn and grow and be encouraged. We pray now that you would put your hand over this building, that you would restrain the evil one and his minions. Father, that your glory would be present and that we would relish in the teaching of your word. We pray in your son's name and by the Holy Spirit's power. Amen. Good morning. Our plan for uh, for next Sunday is for Dan Williams 
to present to us the message that he was not able to present a few weeks ago when his daughter Wrigley was hospitalized that Saturday night. Um, we're pleased to say that Wrigley's doing great, and uh, and Dan and Cindy, of course, were very grateful for all the prayers that were lifted up and during that week. It was a it was, that was a crazy week for them because they were also moving out of their house uh, while their daughter was in the hospital. The Sunday after next is Christmas Eve. And the Sunday after that is New Year's Eve, and on both of those Sundays we're going to have special worship services, extended worship, and we will not have a teaching time. So rather than launching back into our extended study of the Gospel of John this morning, it seemed fitting instead to do something different. And because of the proximity to Christmas, it seemed fitting to me to devote some attention to the miraculous incarnation of Jesus Christ. I spent a good part of the last couple of weeks looking at what the writer of the book of Hebrews has to say about why Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, had to take on humanness. Why did Jesus have to become a man? That's, that's the question at hand. Now, some might respond that he didn't have to because he's God and God doesn't have to do anything. But you might as well say that God doesn't have to be God. See, light cannot be darkness. God must act in keeping with his own nature as God. It's only the foolishness in our own hearts that causes us to see that as some kind of constraint on God. Hebrews 2 verse 17, in the first passage that Cliff read, says, He, Jesus, had to be made like His brethren in all things. And the verb had to means what it sounds like. It means He was obligated. Jesus, who is eternal God, had to put on humanity. He had to become man. Now before I go any further, I want to point out that much of what was true of Jesus in His humanity is not true of Him in eternity. The fact that He was humbled and humiliated, that He was, that He was cursed, that He was, that He bore a curse for us on the cross, these were things that had to happen in history. But we're talking here about the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, who became man. Why did Jesus have to leave the perfect love and fellowship and communion that He had enjoyed together with the Father and the Holy Spirit from eternity past and come down from heaven to earth to be born as an infant, to live among the likes of us for 33 years, and to die a horrible humiliating death on a cross abandoned by His Father. And we're only going to scratch the surface this morning of how just one book of the Bible addresses that why question. So please don't expect this morning to hear a, a complete biblical theology of the incarnation and kenosis of Christ. I have already have eight pages of outtakes from this message, not to mention many questions I didn't even have time to pursue. 
But as I pondered this very deep and very weighty theme, I believe the Holy Spirit kept nudging me through His Word toward one much more focused objective than I started out with. And here's that objective. As the flurry of distractions that surrounds the Christmas season becomes an avalanche of distractions over the next couple of weeks, I pray earnestly that we will do some serious thinking and meditating and praying back to God and talking to the people around us about how the incarnation of Jesus Christ, how the perfect humanity of the perfect Son of God directly impacts the way you and I live right now. And that means that we're going to focus mostly on just one part of the great salvation that Jesus became man to accomplish. And that's the ongoing part. The salvation that He continues to bring about day by day in every child of God until we stand face to face with Him in His unshakable kingdom. The primary focus, as many of you who have studied Hebrews know, the primary focus in this book is on the superiority of Christ. He is, and some of that was, was raised this morning. He is greater than men and angels. He is the preeminent high priest from a superior priesthood. He, he brings us into the perfect tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, and he is himself that perfect tabernacle. He is the author of a perfect covenant. And He is the one and only effective sacrifice for the sin of men. Now I believe that second only to that primary focus on the superiority of Christ in Hebrews is a focus on the ongoing work of salvation that Jesus brings to bear in the life of every single believer to make us holy as He is holy. Not just in position, but in practice. That theme shows up over and over in the book of Hebrews. And it's brought directly into the spotlight in the benediction right at the end of the book. Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to chapter 13 for just a moment. And we're going to look at verses 21, excuse me, 20 and 21. This is the writer's benediction. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The blood of the covenant, in verse 20, is the blood that Jesus shed at the cross to pay the eternal penalty, the debt that we all owed to God because of our sin. All of us who are are God's chosen. That is the first part of the perfect salvation that Jesus accomplished for us as our perfect high priest when He came from heaven to earth the first time. And that first part of His complete salvation guarantees all the rest of that complete salvation. The death and resurrection of Christ absolutely guarantees 
that those who receive that gift will dwell with him forever. But notice that in this two-verse benediction, the writer mentions that perfect sacrifice in verse 20 in order to set the stage for what he says in verse 21. To set the stage for a critically important prayer request that he's lifting up to God on behalf of his readers. That request is all about the impact of that once-for-all atoning sacrifice on how God's people live now, day by day. The second part is absolutely dependent on the first part, and we'll talk more about that as we proceed. The divine help for which he asks God in verse 21, the enablement, the sanctifying work that our perfect high priest is accomplishing in the life of every child of God pervades this book of Hebrews. It is the goal of Christ's ongoing priestly intercession for us every day. It is the goal of his faithful discipline toward us. It is the goal of his daily help given to us. That goal is to equip us to live holy lives, to share his holiness. And at every turn, that second piece of our marvelous salvation proceeds from and is dependent on the first, on the the fully accomplished first part, which is the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And we find these same two aspects of Christ's saving work in various points, at various points in the book, and and I'm going to first go back to chapter 2, the first passage I asked Cliff to read. In verse 17 of chapter 2, we read, Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is a big word, but what it means is satisfactory payment of a debt. At the cross, Jesus paid in full, once for all time, the debt that we owed to God because of our sin. It was an infinite debt that would have taken you and me an eternity to pay. That first part of Christ's work of salvation is complete. When he died on the cross, the last words that he uttered as he gave up his final breath were the words, it's actually one Greek word, it is finished. It is finished. The debt is paid. The second ongoing part of his saving work proceeds from that first fully accomplished part. And the second part's in the next verse. In chapter 2, verse 18, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I love how our worship time just folds right into into what we're looking at this morning because this this same issue came up earlier. There's one line in Martin Luther's great hymn, the first line, the first stanza, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, says, Our Helper, He, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing, 
having saved us once for all time from the penalty of our sin, He now saves us daily from the power of sin. And there is, of course, a third part to the complete salvation that our high priest secured at the cross. That's the future part when He will finish bringing many sons to glory to dwell with Him in His unshakable kingdom. If you read chapter 11, you'll see some references to our citizenship in a city whose architect and builder is God. And you'll see in chapter 12 references to the unshakable kingdom that He has prepared for those who are His. But there is something more foundational here than even that threefold salvation wrought by our perfect high priest. And that more foundational thing that had to be true of our high priest is really the focus of the book. See, Hebrews is about a person. It's, a, it's about the work that person did, but it's about the person. And there are two things that had to be true of Jesus Christ in order for, for Him to be our perfect high priest. In the Old Testament, the high priest represented or took the place of the people in their dealings with God, and he took the place of God in his dealings with his people. The the high priest was the go-between. He was the mediator. And he had to represent both parties. But see, there was a serious problem with that picture. And it is a picture pointing to Christ. There was a serious problem with that picture in the Old Testament because starting with Aaron, the very first high priest, (laughs) every man who served in that role until Jesus catastrophically failed to represent either God or man. See, the high priests were sinners, just like the people they represented. And they were sinners, infinitely unlike the God that they represented. And so they couldn't represent either very well. The high priest's own sin disqualified him from 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 his job description. <laughs> and by the way, the law of Moses wasn't subtle about that failure. The, the law of Moses required that the very first sin offering that the high priest made at the consecration of the temple and from then on, before he made a sacrifice for the sin of the people, he had to make a sacrifice first for his own sin. That should, should have spoke, spoken volumes to Israel. And he had to keep presenting offerings for his own sin and for the sins of the people over and over, year after year, because they all kept sinning. (laughs) And for the same reason, he really couldn't provide meaningful help to the people of God to resist the many temptations that they faced to sin day after day because he was guilty of the same failures. He was sinning just like they were. Hebrews 10 tells us something amazing. It tells us that all those sacrifices in the Old Testament were actually never intended to atone for for sin. 
The blood of bulls and goats can't atone for sin, chapter 9. Chapter 10 says, you know what those sacrifices were for? They were reminders of sin. They were constant, continual reminders of sin. <laughs> and because of because that high priest had to render a sin, an offering for his own sin, they were reminders that, that there was an unmet need, that the sin issue had not been resolved, that there was, there was a desperate need for a high priest who could actually fulfill the job description. And that high priest had to be what those earlier high priests had not been. He had to be the perfect perfect representative of both God and man. That high priest is Jesus. He has always been and always will be perfect God. He isn't merely like God. He is God. And He could not merely be like men. He had to be a man. Perfect man. The best way for me to point out these two necessary things about Jesus as the writer of Hebrews presents them is to direct your attention to two parallel declarations in Hebrews in the passages that were read. One is in chapter 2, the other is in chapter 7. Each of these two declarations begins with the phrase, for it was fitting. For it was fitting. And by the way, it's the only two times that that phrase shows up in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. For it was fitting for Him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Plural. For both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. The rest of that chapter, as we saw, speaks of two parts of the saving work that this perfect high priest accomplishes. The once and for all part at the cross and the ongoing part day by day. Both parts demanded that he become a man. The second it was fitting passage is in chapter 7, but there's a dramatic contrast between that passage and the one in chapter 2. In chapter 7, instead of declaring that it was fitting for Jesus to become like us, (laughs) chapter 7 says it was fitting for Him not to be like us. Chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, For it was fitting for us to have a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. Now listen to that description again. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Does that sound like anyone in this room? No. In fact, it doesn't sound like any 
human being who has walked this earth until Jesus Christ. Jesus had to become a man. The perfect man. To do what no high priest could do except him. He had to be God. Fully and perfectly God to be our perfect high priest. He had to become like like us and he had to be infinitely unlike us at the same time. Chapter 4 puts both of those marvelous truths together to present the greatest, what I see as the greatest day-to-day encouragement to every believer that you'll find anywhere in the Word of God. Therefore, since, therefore, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, our great high priest is Jesus, the Son of God. And if you go back to the first chapter of Hebrews, it, the writer tells us that, that that person, Jesus, He was appointed heir of all things. Through Him, the world was made. All the worlds were made says he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact represent, representation of his nature because he's God. And he upholds all the things that he has made by the word of his power. Does that sound like anyone in this room? No. Does that sound like any of the high priests that you read about in the Old Testament? No. Although Jesus is spoken of in the Old Testament. As the Nicene Creed puts it, Jesus is very God of very God. That means He is as fully and perfectly God as the Father and the Spirit. That has never ceased to be true of Jesus. And He has passed through the heavens, not once, but twice. First, to come down from heaven to earth to take upon Himself our humanness, which He retains forever. To live a sinless life. To show us the character and the ways of His Father. To die in our place on a cross and to be raised from the dead. And then He passed through the heavens a second time. To return to the eternal glory that always belonged to Him at the right hand of His Father. And He's going to pass through heavens a third time to bring many sons to glory as He brings His kingdom to earth and ushers all of His redeemed children into that unshakable kingdom. The glorious place in which we will dwell with Him. But that's not all of the good news about what our High Priest has done for us. That same perfect man and perfect God who accomplished our eternal salvation helps us 
He equips us. He empowers us. He motivates us to live well for Him right now. Right now. He has destroyed the veil that separated us from our holy God. He has flung open the doors to the throne room of grace so that we may draw near with confidence every day. And we may receive mercy and and find grace to help in time of need. And and you know when our time of need is? (laughs) This life. All of it. Every minute of it. That grace that we find as we kneel at the foot of that throne. Beloved, it is not grace to cope. It is not grace to get by. It is not grace to bide our time until Jesus comes back. It is grace to share Christ's holiness. It is grace to live lives that honor Him and show Him off to a world desperately in need of our perfect High Priest. Because He became perfect man, He who was and always is perfect God, because He became perfect man, He suffered as we suffer. He was tempted as we are tempted. He knows our sufferings in this life firsthand. Having suffered infinitely, in infinitely greater measure than you or I will ever suffer. He knows our temptations in this life, having suffered firsthand infinitely greater temptation than you and I will ever know. We tend to think, and if I've lost you before this, let me, let me try to get your attention here. We tend to think, by the way, I blame me for that, not you, <laughs> that we tend to think that if there was some kind of scale that could measure the intensity of temptation, our temptations would top out that scale and Christ's temptations would just put a little dent in it. Because He's God. He wants to do holy things. So we think the temptations He faced actually didn't present all that much of a challenge for Him. It took no real effort for Jesus to resist temptation. But you know, God's Word tells us the opposite. The intensity of the temptations that Jesus faced when He lived here among fallen men on this cursed earth make the temptations that you and I face look like child's play. Listen as I read Hebrews 12, verses 1-4. through Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that's all the Christians that came before us, all the believers, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And now listen carefully. Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you, you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. You see what's going on in this passage? 
you and I have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in our striving against sin, but He has. Jesus despised the shame of the cross. He despised the hostility hurled at Him by sinners like us. The magnitude of the temptation that He faced every single day of His life on this earth. The temptation to be done with us and to return to His rightful glory. The temptation that He faced at the end of His, of his earthly life to say no to the cross. To leave, leave us to the judgment that we absolutely deserved. Makes every temptation that you and I face insignificant by comparison. And the fact that He never yielded to the unfathomable temptations He faced in His humanity the first time He came to earth didn't make those temptations easier. It just made them relentless. How painful do you think it was for the second person of the Trinity who is worthy of all of man's praise and adoration and honor and love and obedience to be questioned at every turn by His own disciples? To be accused of blasphemy by the fake holy men who declared themselves to be servants of His Father. To be arrested and mocked and spat upon and tortured and publicly executed as a criminal at the hands of godless men serving a godless ruler who was doing the bidding of those fake holy men who said that they we're executing Him because it was right to do so. How about the temptation that He faced as He was abandoned by His Father? Nailed to a cross as He bore all of the guilt and shame that was due to us as He bore the full measure of God's wrath against every rebellious thought and word and action that we and millions like us have ever committed or ever will commit in every age of sinful mankind. How painful do you think that was? And how intense do you think was the temptation for Him not to go through with? Do you think that temptation was less intense because his own character made it impossible for him to bail out? When you are tempted to vindicate yourself at someone else's expense, to insulate yourself from painful interaction with messed up people, to covet the pleasure and comfort and material prosperity that others have and you don't, to indulge selfish desires that let you temporarily escape from the pain of this earthly life. Beloved, God says to you, there is one who knows temptation more fully than you can even imagine. And He is your helper. He is your faithful high priest. He's the one who intercepts every true accusation hurled against you by Satan every day. He is your advocate before the Father every single day. He who humbled Himself to the point of death to take your place. 
is your power to live this life well. So why does the miraculous conception and birth and life of Jesus 2,000 years ago matter to you right now? Well, it matters because your eternal destiny depends on His perfect humanity. It matters because your righteous standing in the eyes of God today and forever depends on His perfect humanity. Otherwise, His sacrifice was not sufficient. If you're here today and you are counting on anything or anyone to make you acceptable to God except that perfect high priest and His perfect sacrifice in your place, abandon what you're trusting in and cling, flee to Him because He's the only provision for your sin. If you do not trust Him, you will bear the weight of your sin forever. You will be separated from the presence of God and from the glory of His power forever. And if you're here today and you you trust in Jesus Christ, then His incarnation matters because your enablement to live well as an agent and image bearer of God depends on His perfect humanness every day of your life. For every child of God sitting here this morning and standing here this morning, His incarnation means that your days on this earth, all all of them from now on, can be days redeemed for all eternity. Days devoted to living out His character, to showing Him off to men, to building His household and His unshakable kingdom on earth instead of being days squandered on your own petty, pointless self-indulgence Instead of being days surrendered to a lie that says you haven't been given what you need to live well. Instead of being days squandered seeking help in all the wrong places. There is an exceedingly widespread, deeply held conviction in this godless culture that has gained a very powerful foothold in the community of God's own people. It is the conviction that the only one who can actually help you conquer the temptations to which you are most prone to fall is some other sinner who has already fallen to those same temptations, preferably worse than you have fallen, and then found a way to overcome them. In fact, the more catastrophically that other person has fallen, the more help we we declare that he or she will be to you. So the guy that you want as your group leader in the 12-step program is the guy whose life was wrecked at some point by his addiction far worse than yours has been so far. One brother at our Wednesday sermon discussion pointed out that we don't even say someone is victorious over sin unless he's fallen to the sin. And then somehow made his way back. Isn't that curious? See, we think and we speak as if there is greater power and somehow even greater merit in sinning and recovering than there is in not sinning. So we conclude that anyone who has not experienced a pornography addiction is unqualified to help us overcome ours. 
Any, any mother who hasn't repeatedly lost her temper with a willful child is unqualified to help us avoid doing so with our own willful children. We create support groups and we earnestly hope that they will be filled with people who have fallen worse than we have so they can really help us. I am not arguing against 12-step programs or support groups. But beloved, if you're in such a situation and people aren't pointing you to Jesus Christ, you need to go find another place. Because there is no other helper who is able to make you stand against all the fiery arrows of Satan. There is only one. God tells us straight up that the one who alone is actually able to empower and equip you to overcome the temptations that bombard you every day is the one who never fell to those temptations at all. The perfect man. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. And the word sympathize means enter into our suffering, share in our suffering with us, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to His throne of grace. We have a faithful high priest who knows more about being tempted than you and I will ever know. And because he never felt the temptation even once, he's the one who can actually empower and enable us to resist temptation. Don't look anywhere else. I'm about done here. In Psalm 101, King David wrote these words. Listen to this. I will give heed to the blameless way. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Wow, that's quite a standard, isn't it? How did David do with that? Not very well, just like us. But beloved, there is a king in the line of David who fulfilled perfectly every bit of what David wrote in those verses and he did so without ever wavering. And his name is Jesus. Do you want to walk on and remain on the path, the way that is blameless? Do you want to walk within your house, meaning when no one else can see except God, in the integrity of your heart? Do you want to set no worthless, rotten thing before your eyes? Do you want all the perversions of this world to be as far away from you as possible? Then here's your task. Know and trust the One who has never, ever failed to do all of those things perfectly. Believe that He is entirely willing and perfectly able to equip you to live a life of devotion to God and usefulness to God. And He delights in doing just that. Because perfect God became perfect man, you and I have everything that we need from Him for life and godliness. You want something that's worth celebrating this Christmas as we remember the birth and humanity of Jesus? Celebrate 
that. For our closing prayer this morning, I'm going to ask John to lead us in a hymn that speaks of the very things we've just seen this morning in God's Word. It's a familiar hymn. It's Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Make this your prayer back to God of the things that we have just seen.